0: I went to a grief support group. It was terrible. It was in an office building under fluorescent lights with like a circle of metal folding chairs with a tissue box in the middle. And most of the people there were 50 plus who lost a parent. I remember leaving that night, like racing to a bar to meet up with friends. I was like, I don't wanna spend any more time after a year of going to radiation appointments and looking at medical charts. I don't wanna spend another minute in an environment that feels anything that less than like super alive and vibrant and human.
1: Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear and our guest today is Carla Fernandez. Carla is a dynamic social entrepreneur. She's been the creative force behind several famous cause marketing campaigns and is the co-founder of The Dinner Party, an innovative nonprofit working to transform life after loss from an isolating experience into one marked by candid conversations and community support. Carla, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: I'm so happy to be here, thanks for having me. I was always kind of the kid that was Concerned about the world. And I know that it sounds corny, but I have memories of getting like mailers from PETA and being so overwhelmed and sad and like hand wrote flyers and put them in my neighbor's mailboxes about the atrocities of like animal testing. And I feel like I was kind of born with a little bit of a bleeding heart. The way that my kind of childhood played out, my dad was in business. He was a CEO of a wine company. And I always loved watching him work and seeing how the business world could kind of move mountains and the pace and the excitement and how much he got to travel and the fun that he had and building the businesses that he built. And my mom was an English second language teacher. So mostly working with immigrant children. We lived in Central California. And I remember really kind of holding those two polarities in my heart of what is it like to be both building business and how do we recognize the fact that there are people living in such extreme poverty with such little access to resources who are, you know, at the bottom of this food chain, essentially, that my family was supported by. So, I remember going to a lecture at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, which is an amazing school in the town where I grew up, and learned about fair trade. What is this idea of fair trade and how the idea that we can build businesses that are actually solving social problems instead of exacerbating them. And I remember having a total light bulb moment of, oh, I can both experience the rush of building things that haven't existed before while also um, reducing the suffering or helping with equality where it needs to be experienced more deeply and raise my hand to go down that path.
1: How old were you when this happened?
0: Um, I think I was 17, which sounds so dorky now that I think about it. And I was like a student government nerd and loved like, campus organizing. And, and so I ended up applying to NYU with the intention of studying economics, the social and cultural impacts of economics. But the only conversation that was being had in those big classes was about maximizing profit. I remember having just such distaste around that, um, so I ended up transferring to another program within NYU called Gallatin, and I basically made up uh, the study of social entrepreneurship and socially responsible business, much more from a policy, sociology perspective than a like, business management perspective. And I remember at the time, even my parents being like, socially responsible business, that's an oxymoron. What are you going to do with that? Good luck but kind of had a hunch that this was actually going to be a thing and an industry and whether it was through the fair trade world or through the microfinance world or the sustainability world, I just felt like there was a movement that was starting that it's been really very interesting to ride the wave of for the last 10, 15 years.
1: When you were going down this path at NYU, did you have a clear sense of what kind of social business you wanted to start or did you sort of discover that later?
0: At the time, I was gravitating towards more fashion, apparel, supply chain. When I graduated, I had gotten a job offer from Eileen Fisher, which is a company that I love and like I'm always wearing something from, even today. And I had accepted a job offer from them and was going to do some human rights work in their factories, which was when my dad got diagnosed with cancer. Little did I know then, ended up kind of being the thing that tapped me on the shoulder and, and asked me to you know, show up and see what kind of innovation I could bring to it. Um, At the time, it felt like a really crappy, sad detour. Um, And I had to turn that job down and ended up moving home with him to be one of his caretakers while he died.
1: Uh, You and I have that in common. My dad died of lung cancer. uh, And I, I did the same thing. I quit my job at the time and moved home. While taking care of her dad, Carla worked briefly at Net Impact. An organization with chapters all over the world that works on college campuses to mobilize the next generation of leaders to make positive changes in the world. But it wasn't long before Carla discovered the power of using media and storytelling to further a social purpose.
0: Once my dad passed away and I kind of took a beat, I um, had always really admired Good Magazine. One of my professors at NYU who I really admired, a woman named Natalie Jermajenko. And when I was in her class at NYU, she brought a magazine into, into the class one day and she was on the cover and threw it down on the table and was like, oh, these trust fund kids are starting this magazine about doing good and they put me on the cover. And I remember taking note of it because I was like, whatever weirdos think that this woman is a cover girl, like, they are my people, 1000%. And right around the time when um, after my dad passed away, they were launching um, an in-house agency because companies had started to approach them saying, we also want to do good. You know, we don't just want to put an advertisement in the back of the magazine. We want good to help us think through a broader strategy for impact.
1: Looking back on that period of time uh, in your career, were there specific takeaways that you found yourself using later on?
0: It was really powerful to be with a group of people who were starting a startup, which was the agency, inside of a startup, which was the magazine. And it was run by really young and energetic people. And I know that it's easy to criticize and kind of joke about startup culture. But I think it really showed me that like everyday people can roll up their sleeves and make amazing stuff happen and sell multi-million dollar contracts to big companies. And convince CMOs to try something, like, brave and new. And it sort of let me get behind the curtain a little bit and realize that, like, these systems and programs and campaigns that I've been studying are, were started by people not so unlike me. And um, I think that with the network that I was able to start building there really, like, set me up to feel like I could make beautiful things happen.
1: What was going on at Good at the time that made you guys realized that it was time to move away and start your own thing?
0: Personally, I was super happy and good. I um, had an amazing group of friends there. I loved the leadership there. Essentially, my bosses, who were the partners of the agency, decided to leave and invited me to come with them. It felt like opportunity was knocking and I wasn't actively looking to leave. But when the option presented itself, it just seemed like the right thing to do.
1: I didn't realize the whole Enso crew was from Good.
0: Yeah. Life starts with one cell splitting into two. And there was a group of us that were working in-house at the agency at Good, Good Core. I was with Enso for about six years and saw it from zero people to um, sort of at its peak when I was there as the general manager. We were about 40, which I know isn't a huge company, but was really powerful to get to like play a role in bringing all those people in and figuring out who we were and um, being a part of a lot of the good work that was made there.
1: For people that don't know, tell us what Henso is and, and you know some of the campaigns you guys did, because you worked on some pretty cool projects there.
0: Yeah, I like to think so. Essentially, we were a creative agency working on campaigns that are somehow driving positive change in the world, which means we were helping nonprofits connect to new donors or users. So we worked with the Nature Conservancy and Khan Academy. And we also worked with brands and for profits, helping them launch initiatives that had some sort of positive impact.
1: Carla and the ENSO team worked on some amazing campaigns. They launched a TV campaign for the Khan Academy, which promotes a growth mindset and makes lessons accessible to students of all ages and backgrounds through online video. They worked with brands like Google and the Nature Conservancy and even produced the extremely popular Pepsi Refresh project. As impactful as their campaigns were, not every project was destined for success.
0: I think the nature of that business is that we were pitching work constantly and it was interesting figuring out how to both get so revved up about the potential of something and be able to wrap your head around an issue area and envision how you would take it on and talk to the team about it and get them excited about it too. And then oftentimes work wouldn't come through, you know, that's just like the nature of the batting average. Being in that sort of agency structure helped me learn how to like, quickly get up to speed in something that I maybe had zero knowledge about before. It also taught me how to like act with a little bit of distance from, from some of the, from some of the work that we were taking on and to see things a little bit more objectively. I feel like being in an agency setting, you, you kind of have to get used to rejection as part of the business.
1: As fun and fulfilling as the work at ENSO was, and as big of an impact as Carla and the team were making, another calling was rising to the surface. While at ENSO, Carla and one of her colleagues began working on a project called the dinner party. The dinner party is what it sounds like. It's a community of hosts and diners who come together over dinner to share stories and help each other process grief and loss in a casual safe setting.
0: My dad died in 2010 on new year's day. I started working at good just a few months later, which is where I met Len and flowers. Who's my partner now in the dinner party. At one point, she asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what are you doing? What is your purpose in this life? And I told her, you know, I don't know yet, but I'm really interested in maybe someday I'll start my own thing. And it was probably three or four months into working together really closely that we were out to coffee one day um, and we're on the walk back. And I somehow like let it slip that my dad had just recently died. I was getting really good at not bringing it up because it's like, Generally, for young 20-somethings, not a conversation, I'm sure you know, that people know how to respond to. So I told her that he died recently, and instead of giving me the, like, little God, what do I say? I'm sorry for your loss. Awkward. Instead, she was like, it's funny, not funny. You should mention that because my mom died of cancer, too. And it was the first time I'd ever brought this up to a stranger who was also a peer and had them say, me too which we know now the power of those words, um, in different contexts, but same, same core essence of like, when you can connect with people who have a shared struggle as you do, that the fire in that relationship can be really powerful. We had this epiphany. We're both in this shitty club of having dead parents in our young twenties. But before we knew it, we were like back in the office and it's open floor plan. And we're like, okay, high five, like, see you later. Have a good rest of your day. And I later emailed her inviting her over for dinner one night being like, we should talk about this and what this has been like for us and do you mind if I invite a couple other people over because I had been kind of clocking a few other young women who I knew who had also experienced a loss. So in 2010, I invited Lennon and four other women over for dinner and it was very much like this is going to be a social experiment. It felt like an art project. What if we invited people over and instead of avoiding this topic, we actually made it like the main course of the meal. Um, And I made one of my dad's favorite recipes and served one of the wines that he had helped create. And it was a little bit awkward as people were mingling because we all knew why we were there and no one knew one another. But once we toasted to our people, you know, whoever we'd lost that had brought us there that night, The conversation was off to the races in a way that I couldn't have ever imagined. And so much of the content of it was not just about the accident or the cancer or the suicide, but it was about like, what do you do now? Like, how do you manage Mother's Day or Father's Day? What do you say on a first date when somebody asks what your parents do and you don't want to totally kill the mood or, you know, who do you go to for advice or how do you handle relationships with the living? all these sort of, I'm sure as you know, like hot topics that very rarely get discussed after like the, I'm sorry for your lost condolence card casserole parade wraps up. So that initial table at the end of that evening, we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, okay, let's go on another date. This was like the weirdest, most amazing blind date we'd all ever been on. And we decided to schedule a second date and kept meeting for a year. And in that time, I think Lennon and I, who were both in the social enterprise, good magazine world by day, I think we kind of both sat back and were like, there is actually something here that has never existed before. And chances are, we're not the only five people that are craving this same kind of space.
1: That was the first dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: was it. That was the like accidental, we're not starting organization. We are just doing the thing that we need to do because we feel weird and alone and have a lot to talk about, but not enough people to talk about it with.
1: Yeah. I I really think the best organizations, whether it's a nonprofit or a company really starts from like a personal need and personal experience. Totally. Tell me what is the dinner party and how did it evolve from that first meetup?
0: The dinner party, the one was that it was a dinner party. It wasn't a capitalized the anything, um, And what started to happen as that initial group continued to gather was we suddenly felt a little bit more comfortable in our stories, so started talking about the fact that we lost someone, but using the like, hey, I'm in this cool, weird underground supper club as the doorway in. People's friends started to catch on, and some folks reached out to us asking if they could join. I remember actually being outside of a bar one night in LA, and someone, a friend of one of the original participants was saying like... My dad is, hasn't been in my life for a long time. I've been estranged. Can I come? And thinking like, huh, that's interesting. Like, not only do people crave this kind of space when they've experienced a death loss, but also when relationships have disappeared. And eventually we started to hear from people's therapists that they were recommending their clients to come to this thing. And we were like, come to what? This isn't rocket science. We're just sitting around having a potluck talking about this thing that we all want to talk about. But we, what we did started to realize was like, okay, these things go well when Lennon and I are in the room. How do we create a model so that we don't have to go to every dinner? We don't even have to meet every dinner party or, or every host. How do we create some kind of a structure guideline so that really anyone that has the right qualities can take this model on and lead them themselves? So we spent a bunch of years sort of figuring out both the art and science that is how do you put a bunch of strangers into a room and get them to talk about their most vulnerable personal stories and have it end fantastically? Because we went to a lot of dinners and have been at a lot of dinners that kind of suck and where the conversation never quite lifts off. And when everyone is procrastinating going there um, or when one person is dominating or when one person drinks too much. And, you know, there's so many factors that are hard to control for, but we have figured out how do we equip our hosts to know how to ride those waves? So one question has very much been like, what happens in the room and how can we help optimize that as much as possible? And then the other question has been, how do we build a structure and a community model so that we can receive applications from people across the country and we can match them to tables not just based on the fact that they've experienced a shared loss but by the fact that they like might also kind of be friends and live in the same neighborhood and like to do the same things on the weekends and when we match our dinner party tables we're essentially creating a small group of friends that doesn't just get together once the intention and when it goes the best way that it can go it really becomes a small group of people that have each other's backs and build a lot of trust and continue to gather over time.
1: Interest in the dinner party started to spread organically. There was such a need for this kind of support in an underserved demographic, but demand was growing beyond Carla and Lennon's ability to attend all the gatherings. How could the events scale to meet demand while maintaining the integrity and quality they wanted in their programs? And who would pay for it? How did you know it was time to leave Enso? That must have been a very difficult decision.
0: I kind of had this like split screen reality for the whole time I was at Enso where I was both helping to build this agency and this team and learn this whole new industry. And I was sort of nights and weekends helping to start this nonprofit. And I had gone part-time at ENSO to give myself more time to focus on the dinner party, which just kept growing by leaps and bounds. And it was almost ironic because so much of the work at ENSO was organizations coming to us saying hey, I have this cause or this product. How do I get people to care about it? Like what are the ways in which I can win over people's hearts and minds? Meanwhile, the sort of passion project that I was working on nights and weekends called the dinner party was like a runaway train with more demand than we could manage and with waiting lists in so many cities. And I definitely hit a point where I was wanting to give that work more respect and space in my life, even though it was a nonprofit and we were nowhere close to figuring out how to monetize it and we're fundraising for like every penny that we could. I also had a point where I realized that I'd kind of been working with the same group of people who are so brilliant and taught me so much, but had been really the only team that I had known since I was 21, which is when I started working at Good. So a part of my soul was also calling me to see what it was like to work alongside other people and stretch my legs in different ways. I I hit the point where I like knew that if I wanted to keep growing, I needed to find another nest.
1: I find it really interesting that you and Lennon were thinking about how to scale the dinner party outside of yourselves so early. You hear of so many, especially nonprofits, it's hard at a for-profit too, but especially in the nonprofit space, the founder has some sort of personal connection and a lot of them just have trouble getting out of their own way and, and allowing other people in to take ownership. How did you guys start to make that decision? How are you able to take yourselves out of it uh, or at least you know, help it expand so early on?
0: In the very beginning, pretty much literally, whenever Lennon and I would go anywhere, we would host a dinner party. And we would, through our personal networks, find a group of people who might want to join something like this. It's what allowed us to start to experiment with this format of conversation with different groups of people in different places. But there definitely did hit a point where we were like, we needed to tap out in the sense that like we couldn't be spending every Saturday night hosting a dinner and it became clear once we started to find other people who were interested in hosting that this was a skill set that we weren't the only people who had. In fact, there are people who I've sat down to dinner parties with that I am like, holy shit, bow down. You'd handle that a thousand times better than I ever could have. You know, and the more we started to invite other people from within our community to help us figure out, like, how does this work? And what are the guidelines to start each dinner? And how do you handle when someone is like obviously going through some kind of a crisis, for example? Like, how do you equip a volunteer host to manage that? From early on, we were we really did lean on our community to help us figure out, like, how do we make this thing work?
1: Do you guys have a template for like how an evening should go or is it pretty open ended?
0: We do have a template. We have a host guidebook that we send to all of our hosts. All the dinners are always a potluck just to take stress off the host. And we don't pay the hosts; They're volunteers. We always recommend that hosts leave some things undone in the kitchen so that as folks arrive, there's like something to help out with. And then once people sit down, the host does read through some guidelines around confidentiality and around this isn't a place to give advice around the fact that silence is heard just as much as speech. And then everyone generally goes around the table and introduces themselves by saying who they are, who brought them to the table. And then the most important question is always, where are you at right now with your loss? I don't know how it was for you, Mike, but a lot of us have gotten really good at the rehearsed answer to the question and the sort of spiel around the death or what life has been like since then. And we're much less interested in the whatever you have auto on autoplay and more like what's happening in your life today, this month, this year, and how is it making you think differently about your grief or how is your grief showing up? This alchemy happens pretty much every time where there's some sort of theme or thread that wants to be pulled. Um, Whether it's a dinner in November and everyone's like a little bit nervous about the holidays because there's going to be a big empty chair around the table. Right now, all of our tables, not all of them, but actually most of our tables are meeting virtually to talk about what it's like to be sheltering in place or living living during COVID. And the rest of the evening is really open.
1: Yeah, I, I think I dealt with it in like super slow motion. You know, initially it was just logistics supporting my mom with like the sale of my dad's business and all that stuff. And I had moved home and I was, you know, just there for a few months over the summer. And strangely, I, I think I first started processing it when I moved to New York for grad school, because I was able to get out of that environment. What makes the dinner party unique? What's the secret sauce? What makes it different and special relative to like other traditional support groups?
0: When we were starting it, it wasn't like we did a landscape map that was like, okay, where's the white space in this industry? Like, how do we create something that's an unmet need? Instead, it was like, I went to therapy. It was awesome, but a monologue. I went to a grief support group. It was terrible. It was in a office building under fluorescent lights with like a circle of metal folding chairs with a tissue box in the middle. And most of the people there were 50 plus who lost a parent. I remember leaving that night and like racing to a bar to meet up with friends, none of whom I could talk to about my grief. But I was like, I don't want to spend any more time After a year of going to radiation appointments and being with someone through seizures and looking at medical charts, I don't want to spend another minute in an environment that feels anything that less than like super alive and vibrant and human. Traditional support groups for some people are 1000% life-saving, but there also are a lot of trends around like millennials and young people not feeling as comfortable within institutions. Um, And most of those programs just throw the words young adult in front of their traditional support group format and expect them to work. And I think the truth is that there hasn't been a ton of thinking or innovation around how do we create services that really work for this new generation of people that are coming up. And I think what's cool about the dinner party, and that folks might not feel comfortable going to a traditional grief support group because like, ugh, it sounds lame or serious or too much or they might not be ready to go to therapy or they might not be ready to see a psychiatrist and talk about medical support that they might need but by going to a dinner party they're able to talk with peers and have a very honest conversation about like how is that going for you like is it working is it cool would you recommend it
1: so it's like group therapy for the modern age or for people looking for something a bit different with a relaxing social vibe instead of a sterile institutional feel Through the Dinner Party, Carla and Lennon reached a younger demographic who weren't being served as well by groups geared towards older generations. Their programs have been so effective that Dinner Party has begun templatizing them and making them available for other organizations to use.
0: We actually work with this awesome grief support agency called New Hope in Long Beach. They have an amazing executive director. He's realized that there are people who've graduated out of their traditional grief support cycle, which I think is like a year who get out the other end of that and are like, that was amazing, but like, I'm not done, but like, can I come back? But I don't want to start a group from the beginning. So they've now incorporated having dinner parties as a way of essentially engaging alumni, so to speak, and keeping people who've gone through the programs involved. And vice versa, there's people that have now gone to the dinner parties in Long Beach that are associated with New Hope who have since started to use some of their other services. So The more that we've worked in this space and really started to understand who the other folks are that are dedicating their lives to fighting the isolation that people feel around grief and loss. There are only a couple of us that are really committed to like the 20 to 40 age group. I think had kind of been overlooked, um, which I think is why as soon as we introduced this idea, our doors got banged down.
1: You've clearly put a lot of thought into, you know, the client experience and the experience your hosts have and the diner's attendees i guess i don't know what you call them but we
0: call them our partiers which, <laughs> some of our, which some of our advisors like our philanthropy advisors are like that's really sounds very unprofessional you should not call them your partiers you should call them your beneficiaries or your clients or whatever and we're like no this is for us by us we are finding revelry and joy in the shitty dark corners of life and if you don't like that then too bad so partiers
1: partiers I think it's a great name. What has your approach been? Like, how have you thought through that experience? How have you adapted it to better serve that group?
0: Um, it's been a lot of trial and error. You know, we had the dinner that went way too long, and someone got up and basically ripped into us about how we need to end things when we say we're going to end things. And we've had the dinners where everyone RSVPs, all 12 people say they're coming. And then in the hour before it's meant to start, most people cancel because they get the jitters or they realize they'd rather just like stay home and watch Netflix. So we've gotten the calls from the hosts who have like the lasagna prepped and no one to eat it with. Um, Over time, we've had to evolve sort of how we structure the community team um, that's led by Lennon and this amazing woman named Becca Bernstein who's our community director. So a lot of the kind of user experience tweaking has been around who's reading that application, which table are they going to connect them to, how much contact are we going to have with the partiers versus with their host of their table. There's constantly things that we're tweaking and then of course as soon as we felt like we had the whole thing figured out, COVID happened. And suddenly the need for grief-related community skyrocketed and the ability to do the thing that we've been prototyping dissolved, which is like getting together in person to have dinners. So we're launching a virtual table matching program and virtual buddy system and a bunch of other stuff. So. All that to say it's been a constant evolution, but I do think we've, in the last couple of years, have really figured out what works here and how a table can be set up to be a transformative experience. And now the work is really refining that and continuing to improve that.
1: What are some of your KPIs? I'm curious, you know, from an operational perspective, but also your impact, your outputs are like catharsis and conversation. Like how do you go about measuring that and, and tracking the impact of what you're doing?
0: There are no test scores we can point to. And we just last year surveyed our community members. What we asked was more like, do you feel less alone in your grief? Would you recommend the dinner party to a friend? Would you say this has been a transformative experience for you? We got amazing responses. It was like 96% of people that responded said that they would refer us to a friend. And 76% said that it has been a transformative experience for them. And of course, that's biased because it's like the people who actually filled out the survey, but we felt really good about what came back. So the metrics that we look at, it's it's been an interesting dialogue because I think early on, Lennon and I sat down and we're like, when will we know that we've made it? Like, when can we be like, that was great. Let's move on to something else. Pat ourselves on the back. We were like, cool, 10,000 people. When 10,000 people have sat down to one of these dinners, like, well, that'll be amazing. Could you Could you imagine 10,000 people? And we flew past 10,000 people last year and we looked at each other and we were like, this is still in its infancy. We we're like at the base of the base of the mountain. But I also think, you know, other people had they stumbled upon this idea, I'm certain would have approached it with more of a like, how do we 10X? Like, how do we scale this thing, like focused more on the quantity. We had many people be like, just put the toolkit on your website and people will download it and do it. What's always been a priority for Lennon and I is the quality. Um, And that like, it doesn't matter if 100,000 people come to our website, what matters to us is like how many people actually feel like they have A phone number in their cell phone that they can text when they have a really shitty day and no one in their life really gets it because no one who's close to them has also experienced loss. To us, success is a dinner party table, which happened recently, repping at one of their fellow partiers' weddings. It was really sweet. One of our hosts invited her entire table to her wedding. One of the parts of our mission that we're growing into more and more is like, how do we help legitimize the fact that peer-to-peer support, whether it's for grief or miscarriage or any other hardship, how do we help legitimize peer-to-peer support? Not as like a nice-to-have, soft, cute thing, but actually a thing that can keep people alive and actually a part of like a healthy mental life that if mental health services are thinking about caring for the whole person, if they're not also thinking about the peer-to-peer part, they're not doing it right.
1: It seems like one of your keys to success has been the way you've encouraged input and leadership from within the community.
0: I think it's the nature of what the work we do. I could imagine some other organizations that would feel less instinctual, but the whole thing we're building is about how we need each other, how both like everyone is their own best expert and we need friends who understand this and um, we can learn from one another. And even if we don't have letters behind our name, or even if we're only on day five of grieving, like we have something to add to the conversation because everyone's experiences are legit and powerful and can be learned from. So it's been interesting both like knowing that that's kind of our mission and what we're about in the world and then asking, okay, how do we run our organization accordingly? The training that we've done that guides the circles, the tables and how they gather comes from the Quaker tradition We've worked closely with some facilitators from this organization called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which was started by a guy named Parker Palmer, who's Quaker. A lot of it has to do with allowing groups of people to sit in silence or asking the certain types of questions that helps individuals arrive at what is most true for them, as opposed to being like, you know what you should do? You should really, bop, 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 tell that person off, or et cetera. Yeah, I think it's very much the form within which we operate is one where every single person around the table has something incredibly valuable to, to bring forward. And um, I think we try to run the organization with that sensibility really core to our leadership.
1: Can you explain the membership model a little bit, you know, what is it, how's it working, you know, functionally, but also, you know, as a revenue stream?
0: So the membership model we launched last year is, I think most people think that it's very reasonable once folks apply, they get matched to a table and in the email that we send them matching them to their host, we ask them to give a $35 annual membership fee. We invite them to double it and sponsor somebody else's membership. We also make it very okay that if $35 is not an option for them that month, that there's, you know, ways that we are happy to provide that for them. And I think that was really important for our team from the very beginning was we don't want anyone to come here in a moment of need and feel like they can't afford to be a part of this community. We stood it up last year and it's been really interesting seeing how it's been going. We turned it off during COVID time because we obviously aren't matching people to in-person tables. We'll start it back up again once we work out the kinks of the virtual table system we're launching. Um, But it was swiftly becoming like covering 15 to 20% of our monthly run rate which we would love to be more like 50%. But even if it's not a gigantic gushing tap of funding, it was like um, another tap that we hadn't had before. It does feel really good for me personally to just know that we're creating a more consistent way for the community to help the community and for each other to be all feel accountability and keeping this thing alive. Because there's definitely been dark, dark nights where Lennon and I have looked at not all that many weeks left in the bank account and have had to make some hard decisions. I think our aspiration is to really have this be like a place where people can really settle in and like have a career and a powerful place to to be and to do work without ever taking it all too seriously.
1: The support provided by the dinner party community is more important than ever. As we begin to grapple with the isolation many people are feeling during the COVID-19 pandemic. But funding has become a bigger challenge. Because in-person parties can't be offered due to social distancing, the dinner party has suspended membership fees. However, the work of the dinner party continues, adapting just like the rest of us and finding new ways to keep partiers connected and supported throughout the pandemic. I'd like to change gears here just a little. I understand that in addition to your work on the dinner party, that you're quite passionate about open government and that you've been working on ways to help make the census more accessible in underserved communities.
0: I've been working for the last year officially in the team called the Census Open Innovation Labs, which is inside of the federal government. The the main question our team was wrestling with was how in this year, 2020, which is a census year, do we help make sure that hard-to-count communities across America um, actually respond to the census? For folks that don't know, the census is basically the time every decade where America gets counted, and it's the... Headcount that determines how much congressional funding goes to each community and it determines all um, congressional redistricting, so how many seats each place has. So, while it's not like the sexiest part of democracy, it's actually one of the most critical. It's essentially like the plumbing of America, and um, this is the most important work that we could be doing today. A lot of the work had to do with how do we mobilize creative communities across the country to create content to help get out the count, knowing that the government, the Census Bureau was going to be releasing like a really well done campaign, like a, you know, get out the count campaign, somewhere to a get out the vote campaign. But a lot of Americans don't trust the government and wouldn't jump if they said jump. So why would they fill out this form? So I was really thrilled to be able to work with them on a couple different programs including a Get Out the Count video challenge where we got almost a thousand submissions from filmmakers across the country making Get Out the Count videos. Um, We worked on a series of create which was basically an event model where people would come together and rapidly prototype census outreach materials. Um, In that situation, we got to sort of prototype the model, develop the toolkit of how to do it, and then train census staffers across the country to run them in communities in partnership with local organizations and learned both the power of having a federally funded project unfolding um, and also the limitations of working within that kind of setting and culture and Apparently, America is 60% of the way there. 60% of America has filled out their census. And unfortunately, the last 40% are the hardest. And now it's a matter of reaching um, the people that are really harder to count.
1: It feels like this was, in particular, a very contentious year with the census, with questions being added that were controversial. Yeah. How do you think it's gone? and, And do you feel like the work you did there was able to move the needle on it?
0: It's a very interesting initiative in that, you know, the last time America did census was 2010, and so much has changed since then, how people communicate, what people are motivated by, how we reach different audiences, the political climate, um, and doing the census in like the best of times is a Herculean effort, let alone in a moment where the nation's as divided as it is, and when there's a pandemic raging, so the odds are a little bit against us we're sort of bated breath with how all of this is going to play out and affect um, how the census is completed. It's been really empowering to be a part of a team that's inviting everyday people and not your usual DC types into the conversation and encouraging them with the tools to be a part of um, getting out the count and, you know, participating in this part of our civic duty and um, bringing like fresh ways of thinking about it. I think it's very cool that the Census Bureau funded a team whose job it was to to do that work. And while we were small, I think we accomplished a lot.
1: Whether it's working to reinvent the census, run large-scale cause marketing campaigns, or help people process their grief, Carla has a truly unique style in pursuing the goals she sets out to achieve.
0: I'm realizing more and more that even if I'm working on a subject that's very serious, for example, how do we get more... Funding from Jewish philanthropists into protecting civil liberties in the US, which is a project I worked on a few years ago. I always like to approach it from a place of creative inspiration in order to have those kinds of hard conversations or to shift a dynamic around something that's been sort of cemented into place culturally. We can't do that when we're purely operating from our heads. I really love to bring in sort of wonder and awe and creativity into whatever experiences I'm designing um, as a way of helping move energy to a new place. Everything I work on is sort of bespoke and everything I work on in some way, I try to bring in a creative spark.
1: What's the path not taken? If you didn't end up doing nonprofit work or, or impact work, what would you have liked to pursue as a career?
0: Sometimes I, I, I like fantasize about my exit plan, which would be like moving to Argentina and being a cow farmer and like a rancher. I remember being very young and wanting to be a librarian So probably like being a cowgirl and reading books would be my perfect other life, which hopefully I'll actually do sometime soon.
1: Outside of the projects you're currently working on, uh, what is the most important cause for people to tackle and why?
0: Climate change. Because we're fucked. (laughs) It's said in a different way. I think the cause of our time and the cause that will be at the core of all of the other causes is climate change and how we are not only dealing to stop what's happening, but also growing more resilient to live with the realities of what's happening, which I think is going to be an all hands on deck kind of measure.
1: That would be my answer too, actually. What's next for you? Is it all about scaling a dinner party or is there something else you're planning to take on?
0: I'm in it to win it with the dinner party. Um, We'll keep evolving that work. Um, I've been doing more and more writing, which feels like a real joy for me and i continuing to keep enough projects going where I'm feeling kind of inspired and learning.
1: Great. At the end of your career, you know, 20, 50 years from now, looking back on your life and social impact, what would you like to have accomplished?
0: I think about organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous that have not only built a structure where really anywhere you are, you can find people who get what you're going through but who have also really changed the cultural norms around what it is to live with an addiction. If the work we're doing with the dinner party could be any fraction of that. And I think we're really well on our way. um, That would feel like a a real huge success, which sort of at its essence is all about helping people realize that the shit that we live through that can be the hardest can also be the source of our greatest power.
1: So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to our guest as well, Carla Fernandez. If you want to support Carla's work, you can find her at thedinnerparty.org and carlafernandez.co. As always, we'll include some additional context, show notes, and links for ways that you can get involved on our own website, causeandpurpose.com. We love hearing from you as well. So if you have any questions, comments, feedback, or guests you'd like to hear from, please leave us a note through the website. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us again next time when our guest will be Chris Bessenecker. Chris is the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at Project Concern International, a dynamic human rights organization working to improve lives and livelihoods in communities at home and around the world. In addition to some amazing stories from his work in the field, Chris will share some of his insights around building a culture of innovation and human-centered design into your organization. Lots of great takeaways and lessons learned from that episode to be sure. Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Carla Fernandez, and our entire team, thank you for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.